0: Hello there, fellow scholars, ladies and gentlemen of virtual reality. I'm Chris, I'm your host, and I hope you're having a great day. I have a couple quick announcements before we get the show on the road. Uh, So on January 26, 2015, in San Francisco, California, there will be an event that is a cross-collaborative effort between EnterVR, myself, and this really cool meetup group called SV Founders and VCs. They've been around for a while, and what they're about is, you know, you get to listen to these really cool fireside fireside chats with uh, Jay Zhao, the event organizer. He's a really awesome guy, and you get to peek inside the minds of business leaders and investors, and you get to learn what makes them successful, how they get where they are, and you know all that good stuff. And in that same vein, this month's event will be about virtual reality, and I get. To host a panel with venture capitalists it's gonna be some names that you're gonna recognize um, and they fund funded companies that you're gonna recognize and it's gonna be a good one I'm gonna take them down the rabbit hole um, on top of that there will be demos there will be food and there will be opportunities for you to uh, change mankind as we know it you know Tuesday stuff so January 26 2015 If you want more information, I highly encourage you to join the meetup group SV Founders and VCs uh, on meetup.com. Follow at EnterVR on Twitter because I'll be blasting out more information as it becomes available because we are planning this event as I speak. So in the next 48 hours from the publishing of this podcast, there will be a lot more information um, about the event. It's going to be a good one. I really encourage you to come out and say hi and yeah have a have a good time lastly i have one last announcement if you want to give me in the podcast some feedback if you want to um, post comments if you have questions that you'd like to ask me or like me to ask on the show i'd highly recommend you check out r slash enter vr it is the official subreddit of the podcast and I've neglected it for a little bit. I am so sorry about that. But now I have a friend on board who is helping me out. His name is Aaron. Really cool guy. He'll be moderating it. And we're about to give it some life. With your help, of course. So Reddit slash, reddit.com and it's going to be r slash enter vr. All the relevant links will be in the show notes under the announcements uh, section. And today's podcast is brought to you by myself, because I have no sponsors, therefore I answer to no one, and I can talk about all the crazy things that are in my mind with uh, No Holds Bar. And it's going to be a good event. It's going to be a good show, by the way. I have Michael Aretel, Dr. Michael Aretel, and he is putting together a startup that is on the cusp of rehabilitating the human mind using virtual reality. So it's going to be really good, inter- good really good and interesting conversation Um, So without further ado, enjoy the show.
1: I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff.
0: How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me, because I only believe in science. Tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good
1: idea if you. <laughs>
0: This is Enter VR and I'm Chris Miranda, your host, and this is the podcast about all things virtual reality and sometimes a little more. Um, on today's show, I'm speaking with Michael Aratau. He is actually Dr. Michael Aratau. He is a uh, practicing physician, uh, ER physician, and he's also on the board of the Web3D Consortium. He's also one of the organizers of the San Francisco VR Hackathon, and he's also been to pretty much every VR meetup that I've been to. And you're awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Michael. You're like uh everywhere.
1: <laughs> hey, Chris, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, no no problem. I'm so excited. So, tell me more about yourself. Tell me about uh a little bit about your involvement in VR and how you how you ended up uh getting involved in VR in the first place.
1: Sure. Well, um a mentor of mine uh back in 19 around 1990 um Made me aware of virtual reality in the first place, and that's when, as you know, uh, Jaron Lanier and VPL were sort of in the news. Mm-hmm. And I started to look into it, and I just became immediately fascinated by it. And um, from there, I just uh, started learning, you know, learning about it, um, subscribing to all the um, like CyberEdge Journal that Ben Delaney was uh, uh, had at that time, and then they had some. There was a sort of a homebrew VR. Uh, magazine so I tried to read as much as I could about it and uh, bought the VFX one if people are familiar with that that was a consumer head mounted display which had about a I don't know 42 degree horizontal field of view and head tracking and a headset and uh, and you know was able to play doom with that and so I just was stayed fascinated by it Um, and because I was also sort of Um, a techno nerd Um, that also interested me too. And um, I had done some um, work at um, NASA, did some research there. And um, I was during my residency in emergency medicine in Chicago. When I came back, I sort of reunited um, with NASA there and I did a little work uh, with a cognitive psychologist trying to do some work with virtual environments and, um, measuring distances, um, um, perceived distances, uh, and using like a treadmill and a large screen. Uh, and just from there, just kept uh, a track of, of virtual reality. I, I um, wrote a patent. Uh, co- I was a co-inventor of a patent that deal, dealt with uh, 3D aviation displays because I was a, a pilot. Uh, and also at that time, became involved with the Web3D Consortium and uh, have been active like that ever since. And then, you know, obviously the hype cycle went uh, through, VR went through the hype cycle, and uh, it died and was sort of laying low until um, my friend told me about the Kickstarter for the Oculus. And um, I obviously jumped on that right away and also realized that um, the work that we'd been doing in the 3D Consortium um, especially as it related to getting uh, plug-in lists 3D in a web browser uh, really lent itself to bringing three, uh, virtual reality actually to the masses and that, that the web could be a vehicle for that. And so that's what led uh, me to push the consortium to um, uh, co-host the, or, or to organize the, uh, the uh, hackathon uh, with Damon uh, Hernandez. And um, that's, sort of, that's sort of the brief uh, story of what brought me
0: to where we are today. Awesome. You know, I'm, as I'm hearing you talk, um all i can think about is like oh my god this guy was a pilot too and he's a doctor and like are you on the board of the illuminati and also a secret agent by any chance because like what other jobs are you hiding because <laughs> that's that's quite a life my friend that's awesome um what was the purpose going back to the nasa thing like what was the purpose of the of the of the project that you were you were working on what was that you know what yeah. was yeah yeah so what it
1: was specifically and we never you know, we never got around to publishing anything because we were working it. But it was taking, uh, it was putting a large screen in front of a treadmill, and then, um, and then trying to, then showing uh, a um, some sort of target, and then having the person walk to the target, and um, trying to est- see if they could estimate the distance. And and what we were also doing was we were going to simulate. Um, Microgravity by um, adding what's called a lower body positive pressure system to the onto the treadmill, or actually encasing the treadmill. And essentially, what you do is you put a little bubble around your your body and the and the treadmill, and you and you pressurize it so that it sort of lifts you a little bit off the ground. It sort of it, it deloads you, and so um, then and you feel like you're walking lighter. And then trying to see if you can estimate how you would walk there and get to the, the target. And, um, so we were just, it was, it was a very basic cognitive science type of exercise. And, you know, we were, I was sort of working on it. didn't really, it was sort of me working on it with the PI. and So we didn't have much help. So, um, and, of course I was doing it part-time because I was still I was a physician too so I'm working in the ER so I never we never we never got it to the point where we can get enough data to publish um, but that's sort of what it was about and what was interesting is being able to use this uh, lower body positive pressure system um, which I think has flown before and that's also a lower body negative pressure system if you can think of it in the opposite way. And they use that. You can use that in space to actually load the body. So pulling a vacuum on your, the lower part of your body, you know, onto some either a treadmill or, you know, so that you can actually walk and feel like you're being loaded. You can do the opposite when you're in gravity and uh, unload yourself. And, and so that, that was what is sort of the interesting thing about that. And we, I had done work with this lower body positive or negative pressure device in the lab. Prior to when I start my residency, I, I did sort of two years full time at NASA as a, a research consultant, uh, and then I did do a lot of publishing there and sort of basic physiologic research based on, you know, fluid shifts that occur when, uh, and 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 also how what what happens uh, sort of the contraction of muscles, etc.
0: Well, that is, um, all of what you just said sounds extremely complex and interesting, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm going to move forward because we could spend, that is a black hole we can walk into, and I'm, I'm not going to come back because I can no, go on yeah. forever. I want to ask you more about, um, you know, what aspects of virtual reality uh, fascinate you in particular?
1: So, what I, I really like about it is, um, obviously... Not obviously, but uh, what, I, what excites me about virtual reality, especially is for sort of uh, enhancing cognition and enhancing sort of our cognitive abilities um, to be able to um, display big data um, metaphorically, uh, for example, uh, like having, for example, you could represent, for example, networking data as a uh, as a city and uh, to be able to. And that way you could understand the networking data better. You can understand there, stand simultaneous uh, variables a lot more easily because our visual processing system has a you know the highest bandwidth of all our senses. And so the, 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 the sort of the allure and the excitement of being able to, able to the ability to sort of convert a bunch of big data into a metaphorical virtual environment and to be able to understand that data better than we can since we're not machines and we can't, you know, then, to be able to understand that data and, and to get knowledge from that data or actionable intelligence, and that's really what excites me about it. And that's like the when I did the patent in the 3D aviation, it sort of it motivated me to do that because you know, when you back then, which was 20 years ago, when you were a pilot, a lot of things were done in text this is weather, things that were, it was actually visual, was textual, hmm. and, and, and there were multiple sources where you got multiple types of de- uh, weather reports, and traffic, and, and, and of course there was also traffic to worry about, there was airspaces, which were, you know, airspaces that were dictated by uh, federal aviation rules, and you had to sort of be able to visualize those in your head, so, you know, that's in, in, in sort of an example of, it's not what I would consider big data now, but Uh, It was big data then, and to be able to sort of put all that data in one environment to um, display it in either uh, the the actual way that was actually occurred or display graphical information in the metaphorical way and combine it all together to allow a pilot to understand what the weather was, to understand what the airspace was like, and also to understand – where the, you know, where the traffic was and, and in relation to all those things. And that's really what excited me about virtual reality then and still does now. And, you know, we can, there's multiple uh, ways where we can take big data, like I said, and convert it into something else that, um, that maybe a bunch of, uh, You know, uh, worksheets, uh, Excel spreadsheets, and then convert it into something that's more visual, that's not numbers, and to be able to understand that better, and then make you know, um, know, to essentially understand what it is, and if there's actionable intelligence to do something about it, to understand outcomes, to be able to data mine and understand new insights.
0: What is Uh, the? And sorry to interrupt, but I want to know what is the. What is the advantage of visualizing big data in VR? Is it, the, is it efficiency? Is it effectiveness? What would we get out of uh, visualizing yeah, big data in VR?
1: I mean, there's a lot of things we can get out of. One of the things that I think is primary is that, yeah, we get what I call visual compression of, of data. So you know, I could take something that may be several rows on a spreadsheet and convert it into an object, and I can immediately immediately understand what those rows of the spreadsheet mean meant or mean by looking at that object rather than trying to decipher what those you know sort of work out in my mind what those rows of the spreadsheet or worksheet mean. Hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I gave you an example. The aviation example is one. I mean, it's just anything. If you could take, for example, medical data. Um, you know, when I work in the emergency room, for example, you know, I'm, I'm taking data sources from the lab, from the x-ray, from the patient's history. Um, you can imagine pulling those things all together and maybe, you know, especially when you're looking at population health, then, and, and displaying those in different ways so that you can understand it better and, and get, gather more insight. Now, for some data, you know, 2D is fine. And, and that's also something that, I've become pretty sensitive to is you know we don 't there 's always a tendency to throw everything into 3 d there 's probably going to be a tendency to throw everything into a virtual environment and but there 's a time and place for everything you know um, for example, do you need a head mount display um, to do understand basic anatomy well, not necessarily so for example, if I have a brain for example mm-hmm. and I want to look at this brain and understand the anatomy. I really just need to see it in 3D, but I don't need to be necessarily immersed inside the brain uh, to really understand it. Um, I could have a 3D model of the brain and I could spin it around. You know, I can have different surfaces disappear so that I could see the, uh, you know, inner portions of the brain, different regions, but you don't really need VR for that. Um, The only way that I guess if you really wanted to like it, inside the brain and and see things from that perspective um that would be the only time where you would really need a head-mounted display and immersion but you really can get most of the basic neuroanatomy just from having a 3d model that you can spin around for example on your screen you know
0: yeah or or in augmented reality but but i also want to touch something that you talked about earlier and is Mm -hmm. the idea of enhancing cognition with vr yeah um And perhaps you can follow me down this road because I'm I'm sort of uh, I want to see if this is feasible. And essentially, like what I what I've seen and what I've read is that uh, we suck at multitasking, like humans, like we're not good at it. And and that's you know I guess it's like sort of backed by the fact that we you know that texting while driving is worse than driving drunk or comparable to driving drunk. and, and so it, what you mean by enhancing cognition, do you mean that if we immerse ourselves in, because what we're doing right now is we're competing. My smartphone screen is competing with the real world, right, in terms of multitasking. And so what if I just throw myself inside the smartphone and all I'm surrounded by is information, thereby sort of cutting down on the issue of multitasking. Is that how you envision our cognition will be enhanced or do you see it a different way?
1: Well, sort of that way. I think what it is, is, like I said, is um, actually sort of converting information into ways that become digested better. Mm-hmm. So if we take a bunch of rows and, and columns of numbers, which would take us a long time to pour over, uh, if it was just a numeric form, if we converted those columns of, and rows of numbers into something that was uh, more uh, visually uh, understanding, like a 3D object that had you know, different ma- uh, material characteristics, etc., we actually can process that better and faster than we could, you know, if they were just numbers, rows and columns of numbers. And so. If you look at it from that way, you can speed up your understanding of something that was just purely described in numbers. Uh, if you can convert it to some sort of metaphorical 3d shape, then you, it, then that sort of uh, leverages our visual pathways, which as I said are some of the highest pathways in the, you know, broadband pathways for our senses. And we, we have a lot of you know, brain dedicated to visual processing then we can understand it much more quickly so that and that way you are cognitively enhancing
0: yourself. Uh, So I want to know, and and this is a very fundamental question, like what is cognition and is it, is it like, is it like a muscle that if you, if you exercise it, it'll grow? I mean, how does it work? What, where, where is cognition?
1: Yeah, I think that that's, you know, I don't want to get myself in trouble with the cognitive scientists uh, in, in the audience. Uh, I mean, cognition is really just the, uh, I'm, you know, it's, it's hard to define. I mean, it, it, you can't just say, it's a, uh, it's one, it's, ugh. it's, I, I use it as sort of the act of um, understanding uh, your environment and taking in in you know, in your environment and all uh, from all your senses, and also your thoughts, to either solve a problem or to it doesn't have to be to solve a problem, just to to move or live. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really sort of the act of thinking and the process. It's really like sort of the processing of the human brain, mm-hmm. and it can be for a number of different purposes. Um, and so. I looked at VR as, like, if we have a problem to solve, if we have data that we have to understand, I'm using it, when I'm I'm talking about cognition, then that's when I'm talking where where VR can help. Mm -hmm. You can also help, for example, in activities of daily living with rehabilitation. So, um, you know, if you're in a virtual environment and there's a lot of literature uh, over the last couple decades which supports this, that, you know, using a virtual environment can actually... Uh, help not only with physical rehabilitation but also with cognitive rehabilitation because when someone has a stroke as you know they don't have only problems necessarily moving their limbs but they also can have problems thinking and cognition is you know memory and retrieving, just retrieving things to remember or just to be able to drive a car or to be able to walk which is a combination combination of both cognitive and physical abilities mm. And so cognition is sort of a general term for, you know, essentially processing things, uh, your brain to process things. And um, so I, I think virtual reality in, you know, the previous example I gave was for using sort of your the processing when you're trying to solve a problem, when you're trying to look for patterns, uh, you know, um, you're trying to get some actionable intelligence uh, for a fixed purpose, but cognition is also just being able to, to live, to comb your hair, to, to walk, to to be able to negotiate uh, in a crowd, to be able to drive mm-hmm. using cognition that way. And virtual reality has already been proven that it can help in, in those aspects too.
0: Cool. Let's go back to the realm of practicality. And I'd like to know more about you as a, a practicing physician in an ER environment. Like that must be... That must be crazy. I couldn't imagine your, your, your life. But, you know, I wonder if you like me, I'm I have I see the world through VR colored glasses. And I wonder if you if you go to your, your, your place of work and do you do you see places where the services, uh, the current paradigm services slash equipment slash, you know, whatever it is, do you see places where ER can ER can be improved by VR?
1: ER can be improved by VR. That's very catchy, Chris. So, um, <laughs> yeah, actually, I mean, if you look at the literature too, uh, I think there's, um, what, one thing that we see a lot of in the emergency room, that uh, one of the primary reasons that people come is because they're in pain. Mm-hmm. And, um, also if you look at the literature and this is also going back probably almost 20 years, uh, with Hunter Hoffman at the hit lab in Seattle, um, they were the first to use virtual reality, uh, for a pain distraction and they, they they started off with, I think, I believe pediatric burn patients, but since then they've uh, branched out and they're using it in other types of patients. But I could see where, um, you know, in, in cases where people are in pain and especially they may be in what I call acute pain or, you know, sudden pain, not that they're in pain all the time. Um, or they have to have, go through a painful procedure that you could use something like virtual reality to distract them. And thereby um, lower their discomfort, and I, I see that as uh, definitely um, a possibility and a possible use of virtual reality in the ER. It also can be used, I think, in, in and I think there's been some writing. I'm not sure in, in chronic pain too, where virtual reality can be used to help uh, people who have uh, you know chronic conditions uh, that cause pain, just to sort of distract them. Yeah. So that's one. What that's
0: one direct uh, application I can see. Uh, with ER and VR cool um any anywhere else that you probably I, could, I that the pain treatment aspect of VR is is very promising I sp- I've spoken to Howard Rose he's done attack of the s mutants and um uh yeah, he found first uh, firsthand and he's uh he he had this he's done work with pain treatment and uh soldiers coming back from war with burn wounds and yeah mm-hmm. and he was using HMDs and yeah it's very I think it's, I think, why is that taking so long to take hold? I mean, it's a non-invasive, um, it's non-invasive, it involves no drugs, and it's, it should be cheaper. Like, I mean, why do you think that's, uh, you know, is it's, it's slow to catch up?
1: Yeah, so... I think n- number one reason, and, and which is now being this barrier is being destroyed, is uh, th- there was a cost issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, when th- this research was first done, you know, the headsets were five to ten thousand dollars, right, for a decent one. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so now that um, that's that's number one. Number two, um, content creation was difficult, um, and now of course with uh, you know certain platforms like Unity and then or you know, using X3D, X3DOM as a delivery mechanism, um, you can do things a lot more easily and cheaply. So I think there's it was a cost barrier, you know, availability of hardware, and so that that's being destroyed now. And I think you're going to see a lot of um, applications pop up there. The other the other thing I guess you got to think about is. Um, uh, you have to think about how are you going to sanitize the. Uh, if you're going to use a head mount, you know how is that going to be sanitized so that uh, you don't pass on, you know, any anything from one patient to another.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I think I saw someone who was, uh, you know, starting to market something so that you can use a, you know, a headset sort of in a public, you know, uh, environment. But that that's I think is a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally um it takes a another thing it does is it takes some time to get some really good um, clinical studies to show efficacy mm-hmm. uh, you know, and you need a, a nice you know, some random randomized controlled trials to convince the medical establishment um, that you know that this is a truly effective treatment and that's usually when they go ahead and, and start adopting it and that that cycle can be a long time. I mean, you know things that are it can be 10 years or even more sometimes from the time something is first sort of uh, introduced to when it really gets accepted as sort of standard of care. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now that um, VR is becoming more accessible um, and building on what Hunter Hoffman did, for example, for VR and pain, you know, I think that you, you know, you'll hopefully see some more, studies like this, and that eventually has some randomized controlled trials, and then then it'll be accepted by uh, the medical profession.
0: I, I want to know about how receptive do you, in your estimation, how receptive is the medical establishment slash community to virtual reality? I mean, how long before, I mean, will we ever see med, med students practicing surgery in virtual reality? I mean, what do you think?
1: Oh, I think, oh, No question. I think that's one of the – you know, training is a really big, you know, use case in general for virtual reality, just in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think, again, it's a matter of accessibility. I'll tell you when – a few years ago, um, I uh, was able to get um, uh, my – a group of people from the emergency department to participate in – and this wasn't virtual reality. This was just – this was just like a sort of a second life type of uh, environment and it was a simulation. um, And um, it was a simulation of a sarin gas um, um, release. And, you know, it was like a a virtual environment, but it was, you know, it was desktop VR. Essentially it was, um, you know, it was just on the screen of a bunch of PCs and, you know, they were hooked up and they were chatting with each other and, they, um, there were no NPCs, there was no AI, it was actually all real people, and so real people actually were the victims. But it really, um, after it was over, people just thought it was, was great, um, and they really liked it a lot. And I, I think, you know, it was just that something like that, I had to arrange, you know, to have it done, and uh, it wasn't a very common thing to do, and so. Again, this accessibility and affordability uh, has made it difficult for people to experience this and to, to really make use of it. Now, uh, again, because those two barriers are sort of being destroyed, um, I think you're going to see a lot more people playing with it. And there's multiple use cases uh, for training, for example, um, where VR will be an advantage. Mm. Uh, and, you know, like I said, VR is good in some cases for training, like I said, with the anatomy, you really don't necessarily need it uh, but um, for that, but maybe, you know, especially with uh, surgery, um, you know, obviously, because you're sort of uh, looking at the field and you may have to look at the, the scrub nurse or something like that, um, that may be... Re- may re- be more advantageous to have an immersive environment, so you really sort of duplicate what you're going to be doing in real life.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to ask. So this is a bit of a random question, um, but I want to get your thought on it because sure. there was this. Um, there's this. There's this doctor. I, I don't know where the article came from, but he published uh, some research that showed that smartphones are screwing up our posture. That that now our necks are like um, are are increasingly getting like deformed because we're constantly looking down, <laughs> and so yeah, and so I wonder like I mean that is a pain point in the market like that is that is something that could be solved, and people won't stop consuming information. So the question is how do you make the consumption of information as as painless and as non consequential as possible? And I wonder if the HMD. Is the way to go? Is is? Do you think that the HMD is the is the way to go for? Is is going to come after the smartphone in terms of how we consume VR, like how we consume information? Just because of you know, because like, what comes after the smartphone, and you know, and is it the best way to consume information? I don't know. What do you What do you think?
1: Yeah. What What I think is that there's going to be a place for a head mounted display, but I don't think it's going to be an everyday thing. Obviously, because if you have a head mounted display and you sort of block out well, at least the classic HMD, you block out the rest of the world. Yeah, I and mean, that's why I think the, your uh, augmented reality is getting a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. And in terms of uh, what you're talking about, especially everyday information display, I mean that's why uh, glass, you know, is uh, gotten a lot of uh, interest. Um, and then you're, you're seeing a lot of um, AR companies popping up, um, you know, building in the form factor of like glasses. And I really think that's sort of the next generation of uh, an information consumption device because you still have um, full visual uh,
0: contact with your environment, but then it's overlaid, you know, with the information that you need.
1: So, and and I think the HMD is for more of a, I mean, the classic HMD is for more of a, uh, an experience where you sort of want to block out your current world and be fully immersed in, you know, another world.
0: I want to know, you know, because so I, I mentioned the, uh, the the negative aspects of using a smartphone all the time, but I want to, I'd like to see if I can get your your, your opinion, your, your thoughts on the potential consequences of a long-term use of VR. Like, you know, what do you think it'll be? Is it, are people going to have neck strain, eye strain, brain strain what do you think yeah that's
1: well you know a lot of work again having to sort of stand on the shoulders of a lot of um, foundational work that's been done and maybe uh, you know for over the last 20 years a lot of people have been looking at this and even though they had um, more expensive head-mounted displays they did have a head displays and they were doing a lot of foundational work on things like this and as you know i mean if you look at you know why uh, what oculus for example is focusing on they they understand that this the whole thing with you know simulator sickness um, is the you know the disagreement between you know when you move and when you see your movement in the environment and they've sort of understood that latency is a real key thing so um i think that for the you know they're getting to the point where this latency issue uh and especially with the hardware the, the you know the hardware strength and it's it's making that point sort of moot right now but there's there's other issues that still have to be taken into consideration for example you were talking about neck strain well you know how light can we make hmds i mean i think that long-term use with some of these hmds if they're not light enough yeah it could cause neck strain and then in terms of the eye strain um there is um and i I don't I, i don't understand this fully or know about it fully but um, there is a um, sort of a, a disconnect that you have when you use an HMD because you're sort of focusing your eyes on a fixed focal plane, which is the, the distance, you know, between your eyes and where, you know, you're focusing and you're focusing it on the, um, you're essentially focusing on the screen. Mm-hmm. But in, in real life, um, when you look at something, uh, you focus, it could be close, it could be far.
0: Mm-hmm. And so your
1: eyes move. You know, when things are close, they move uh, towards the center, right? And then when you look farther away, they move apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's um, and that could be and that 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 type of movement and and what that does that that causes a, in the head on display or if you're looking at a fixed screen that that is decoupled. And so there was there was a lot of work done in looking at how that can cause some some problems, so that when you have been in head mount on display for a long period of time, um, and you take it off, that you have a some trouble, sort of uh, focusing on things again. And um, so, I know that you know when I talk to a lot of people, you know, and and even myself when you, you know you do work in the you do the virtual reality uh, in the um, games or you're just in a virtual environment, people don't tend to spend more than 30 or 40 minutes in it before they need to take it off. Um, and uh, although there are some people uh, like Cymatic Bruce who will spend you know hours in it uh, playing Elite Dangerous um, and without, without any seeming problems, but I think he's more of the uh, exception than the rule. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I think those issues still have to be dealt with. Um, I know, I, I think at one of the SVVR meetups, uh, there was someone displaying some type of, uh, device that was able to, uh, sort of get over this decoupling of your convergence of your eyes with your accommodation, which is the focusing, but that's something that's an issue like which you're saying sort of in general eye strain, which I still think may be not solved completely
0: yet let's stay on this for a little longer because i i want to follow up with something i i read um so so it's essentially and that what you just said relates a hundred percent with this um with this article but again it's that i that i read that i got forward to me about how that the region in the brain where we process spacing Um, and I, I'm, I'm threading on very thin ice, by the way, and I will preface the next things that I'm about to say by saying, I know nothing. I'm an ignorant man. Um, so, so, but, but I'm going to continue forward, uh, by saying that the hippocampus from what I read is a place in the brain where people, where we humans, you know, distinct like spacing and because and so and so the the question that arises from long term use of vr is are we physio- are we changing the hippocampus physiologically by you know long term periods and is the brain plastic enough to come back it sort of reminds me of the astronaut experiment when they ma- where they gave them like these glasses that inverted the world and after 2 weeks they adjusted like their brain actually like adjusted to it and then they took off the glasses and they were seeing upside down and you know the brain adjusted again i'd like to get your thoughts on this like is is it too early to start you know discussing you know what areas of the brain are being impacted and what those impacts should be and how to minimize them what do you think
1: yeah i mean it's funny that was that was the that was the citation that i was going to use too you're exactly right. Um, I mean, I'm not a neurologist. Uh, you know, like I said, my specialty is emergency medicine, and so I don't, I can't tell you where all these things are processed, et cetera. But I do know that there. Yeah, you're right. The brain, the brain is plastic, and that 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 study that you talked about, although I, I haven't read it, but I've you know read summaries about it. You know, the people were, you know, they wore those prism glasses for weeks, and and they essentially eventually accommodated to it. So they essentially turned everything upside down, I believe, and they were able to accommodate very easily um, um, over a period of time. And then after they took them off, they were able to accommodate back. And so the brain is very plastic. And and that's why we can have rehabilitation where if people have, have a stroke. Um, we can rehabilitate them to help them rewire their brain and establish new pathways so they can move their limb again, or they can uh, start thinking and their memory can improve, or they can uh, speak better. Um, So the brain is very plastic, and, um, you know, there may be things that happen in a virtual environment that can cause some changes, although I think that unless you went in a virtual environment for, you know, like the PRISM experiment for, you know, essentially 24-7, for long periods of time, um, then, um, there could be some changes, but then again, those changes could uh, be reverted when you're back in the normal environment. Yeah. When, you know, assuming that people are going to be in virtual environments for, you know, now it's, I would say it's in the scale of minutes and it eventually probably will go to the scale of hours. There may be some changes. Um, but, and, but those changes not, are not, I don't think would necessarily be permanent, but. And just like in the old days, I think there's some caution given to people who are in those um, those you know, using virtual reality that there should be a period where you have a chance to readjust. Mm-hmm. Just sort of like, uh, and, and I don't know, it may be the case that we need to do that. Uh, it may be sort of like when you take a drink, uh, you know, you've got to wait an hour before you drive, so you're, you're legal. Uh, it may be if you're going to be using virtual reality for a certain period of time, it may cause, depending on the sauce the virtual environment and what it does and how it's, uh, you know, how it's um, made because it actually may not exactly mimic what the real world is. It, they may require you to, it may be recommended that you sort of, you know, wait a certain period of time before you do work-heavy machinery no. or drive or something like that. No. So, I mean, that's a good point. I, I think there are some changes and I, I, I don't... Can't recall. I think there's some. Um, I mean, there are there are definitely changes that occur w- uh, using uh, virtual environments with training um, that can be um, beneficial, that can help you in the real world. So, um, you know, there was the uh, NeuroRacer, although listen, I don't think it was virtual reality, but it was a game that uh, UCSF designed and and they trained people on it and they trained some. Um, older people on it compared to younger people, and the older people were able to get to certain reaction times, I believe, uh, of the younger people, and then that that change was sustained, Um, and that's a beneficial change, and I, I think you'll see that, you know, virtual reality can do some beneficial effects, and especially if you design the environment to create beneficial effects that can help you in the real world, that are supported in the real world, that are for the real world, then those changes can be sustainable.
0: Yeah, and staying on that for a little longer, like how VR and and in general, like um, from what I've been seeing and reading, gaming itself has, gaming with the controller or mouse and keyboard in the last few years have have sort of changed how our brains work. Uh, From what I've read, you know, people who game, play a lot of video games, have a better uh, response time, I gotta say, in terms of reflex, they have they have better spatial awareness um and so in that same vein you know like what do you think that the the benefits of using vr will outweigh the the potential consequences
1: yeah i mean i think that the the potential first of all the potential consequences i think are going to be uh hopefully will be eventually solved Mm -hmm. for the most part and 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 obviously just like games have shown, and they sort of sort of uh, set the, the path. Um, they set the path that um, eventually, I think, we'll see uh, VR being used for beneficial effects. I mean, I'm working now to, um, you know, do some work in virtual reality and rehabilitation. Um, you know, starting with physical, and then just sort of by Uh, you know, sort of goes along with the cognitive. So, um, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of applications that are specific that you can use to help rehabilitate people. And then as far as sort of the, uh, you know, um, collateral effects just by entertainment, um, by using VR systems, will it help us? Yeah, I think they'll probably be, you know, probably along the same path as games. You might see better spatial awareness, um, um, you know, maybe... It may uh, help with some form of reaction time. It may help with some form of um, you know understanding data better and uh, mm-hmm. using different metrics. So I mean, I definitely think it'll just follow
0: uh, you know, the way the games are going, but even more so. And so, you know, you mentioned physical therapy, and we, uh, when I think of physical therapy, I, I'm thinking about squats and sit-ups and i'm thinking about leg like you know different leg exercises but that's physical therapy for the body and, and what you're saying with the rehabilitation is there a way to or will there, will there be a way to use physical therapy for the brain if you know what i'm saying like can we can we use vr to treat people with dementia or treat people with alzheimer's or treat people with you know, some with brain illnesses. Like, do you, do you think that there, there's a way to tailor this technology to, to help those people? Even though I know those, those particular diseases are all like worlds apart in terms of how different they are. But like, you know, I, I I wonder if, if there's, if there's hope in VR for, for it to be a helpful tool.
1: No, not only is there hope, there's already been, there's a, like, there's a foundational uh, amount of knowledge which shows that it, it does help and that it can help. And if you, um you know if you use things if you build environments a certain way and, and use certain tasks that it will actually help with i think what you were talking about is the cognitive portion is sort of the thinking the processing portion of the brain mm-hmm. as opposed to actual motor or movement control it can help both there's the, there was actually just recently a textbook um published this year that went uh, and did a review of all the physical rehabilitation uh, research that's been done in virtual reality. Um, and then I think that's part of a series. And the next one is going to be on the cognitive or the thinking part, which is what you're talking about now. But there is a lot of research that already has been done in that. Uh, people have tried it. It does work. And now uh, with VR becoming, again, accessible and much cheaper, you're going to actually see it being, um, you know, distributed and throughout the, you know, I think it's going to become part of the armamentarium of physical therapists and and also for, you know, it'll be like, you know, um, lumosity on steroids, right? Mm -hmm. So lumosity is sort of a popular tool that's currently being, um, you know, they're gathering data to see if it really does have uh, benefits for your cognitive abilities. And um, I think you're going to see, uh, you know, virtual reality programs like that to help, people with cognitive deficits too, like you said, dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, et cetera. Yeah. And it's already been shown that it, it can do that because the brain is plastic. And if you, you know, stimulate the brain with the right type of, of in a ritual environment, you'll actually stimulate the brain to rewire itself for the tasks that you're, you're targeting.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm extremely fascinated with that. And, and I, and I, I'm hopeful too, that I think it's going to be huge. So I want to take a, a sharp left turn and ask you about, you know, how long do you think it will be before you, you start seeing patients at your emergency room with Oculus Rift stuck in their rectums?
1: <laughs> like I said, um, it takes a long time for the medical establishment to, um, to adopt things. And, you know, judging from how long other things have taken, I mean, to, to make it sort of an everyday thing, I, th- I think it's going to take – Probably around the decade. Yeah. It could be, it could be sooner, uh, because you know you see all these the this sort of the, the the technological cycles of things are becoming much more quicker. Um, but uh, and I think also um, it may be a little quicker only because of the way that medicine is changing here in in the states here in terms of reimbursement as as we're moving from a system that pays for uh, volume or pays for services to a system that pays for quality and pays for clinical outcomes, Mm -hmm. um, that may actually shorten the the cycle for technologies like this because people uh, or organizations will just use whatever they can that shows that it can uh, help them save money and also help them, uh, patients... Be happier and help patients be healthier. Yeah, and so so that the the incentives uh, are changing and the re- way reimbursement is changing that may actually uh, make that cycle a little quicker.
0: And so it's, it's sort of the where where I want, want to take the question is like how you know as an ER doctor like I wonder if you're thinking if you're prepping yourself in, inside your head for the. For the worst case scenarios of what people will do to each other or themselves while wearing an HMD, and and like I also say this because like it's important for designers who design these products to make them as safe as possible, and right. it's a, I think it's a reason why Oculus keeps saying that the Oculus Rift is a sitting experience, and you know um and, and so like do you what it, what do you think are are the potential ways people could get physically hurt like coming that's why i said like oh they'll have uh, you know rifts inside their rectums because people put stuff inside their butts all the time from what i read on reddit but like i don't know that you, you must know more um so yeah what do you think what do you think like is there is there is there what are the potential ways that people can get hurt like you know obviously tripping and falling um could the hmd break and like puncture a hole through your forehead like, <laughs> like, like well you know
1: I, I guess anything is possible you know i guess i misunderstood your question i'm sorry when you were i missed that thing where you were saying when your people are going to come in with riffs, riffs in their rectums uh, i thought you just meant are uh, using riffs in in, in general but oh, no. <laughs> so um but i mean obviously there are ways that people i, I mean if there's a way you can get hurt with something uh, you know i'm sure there'll be a case report of that happening. I'm sure that, you know, if you fall in a certain way from a a big enough height and an HMD breaks, you know, it's going to, just like anything on your head, it's going to, it may puncture your head. Now, depending on the material that it's made of, you know, it may not have the ability to do that. Um, You know, know, Oculus says that the Rift is a sitting experience, but if you talk to Omni, they're going to say, you know, the uh, virtual uh, reality is a walking experience. So, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it depends on what they're using too. Um, but I'm sure that, you know, just like with, uh, people who, uh, you know, when the, we came out and had the, Wii motes and people were smashing their, their, uh, their TVs accidentally or hitting people with the, Wii motes because they didn't realize, uh, where they were moving their arms or letting them go instead of into the TV into someone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to see things like that happening. Um, but just like anything um people and uh, you know I think for the most part, understand how these things are used and um will hopefully use them responsibly, but there's always gonna be people who don't um and who will mix drugs and alcohol with uh you know virtual environments <laughs> and um if they and then their judgment uh can be uh, impaired and then they might do something that they really shouldn't do and they can get hurt. I mean, it's just like anything else. It's just like, you know, we know that we're not supposed to run the red light with a car, so we don't. But some people do anyway, uh, either because they're under the influence of something or just because they do that because of the type of personality they are or whatever, and they're going to get hurt. And I think the same thing could be said of using head-mounted displays.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, the only thing I would say with a head-mounted display is that it's not... I don't think it's as cut and clear as not running red lights. Like why like it's it's still very uh unexplored territory. So I can oh, sh- see myself I can see I can actually see myself on drugs jumping on a trampoline while wearing an hmd. Yeah. I'll see you in the emergency room. So yeah. <laughs> um but, but yeah, I I think there is going to be a lot of experimentation people are going to want to do different things with that thing on and um uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah in, in the
1: early days, yeah, you're going to see, you'll probably see more injuries than you will see. I, I was thinking more when it became mainstream. Hmm. Um, I'm sorry, right now you're right. I mean, people are going to experiment with it and you're going to see some, um, you know, some accidents that happen because they're experimenting and they may not know any better because there's been no good guidance. But I think once it becomes mainstream, people are going to, for the most part, know, when to use it and how to use it, just like any other thing that becomes mainstream eventually.
0: Yeah. Last ten minutes of the show, let's talk about Web3D. I know you're passionate about it and I want to know your thoughts as to, you know, what 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 place in the virtual in the story of virtual reality, like what place will Web 3D take? Like what will Web3D be remembered for slash talked about in the future? Yeah.
1: Well, I'd like it to be the place I'd like it to take is sort of, um, sort of the standard, um, for 3D environments. Um, I think, you know, some people say it's too early to have a standard in virtual reality. I, I, I disagree with that because I think we've had 3D environments for decades. Um, computer graphics, you know, has been around for decades and there's well established, you know, standards, etc. Um, and I just think that, I'd like it to be remembered for being the standard for virtual environments. And um, I think we need one because uh, I see it as a way, um, number one, to be able to have disparate systems communicate with each other
0: mm-hmm.
1: and to, uh, to protect um, content developers from getting lock-in uh, and to be able to, to take their content and move it between different platforms. Without a standard, you're not able to do that. Um, so if you develop in one platform X, um, and I don't necessarily mean hardware platform, I also mean software platform, et cetera, you want to be able to move it around and, or you may want to try a different tool on it, et cetera. And so I think it's important that a standard is there for that and that the standard is not a de facto standard uh, because one uh, company has total control of it, but it's a, it's a community standard and it's one that's open – and that's royalty free, and that goes through uh, a standardization process so that it's well documented, uh, and that you know so that the standard is something that can be implemented, uh, and that because of well a good documentation, and that that good documentation comes from the recognition that you know to have a standard that is viable, you have to you know to be able to write to it, and you you can expect. Uh, different products to be able to support a standard unless there's good documentation. So that's yep. sort of the bottom line here. And I see the implement the latest implementation of X3D within the web browser uh, taking advantage of WebGL um, and essentially making the browser the delivery platform of uh, virtual reality. I think that's really the ultimate distribution platform uh, for this type of content.
0: Hey, I think the browser is... Um I, I think the browser is a portal to the metaverse, but but I think I think that it has a ways to go and it has uh, formidable challenges because if I am a big name company that I shall not name here, um, <laughs> if I'm Facebook, anyways, uh, like if it, how the fuck am I gonna sell users' data? Like how? And I say this because. In in a sense, I'm like joking, but it's kind of true. Like, you, do you? How do you con? Do you have to convince those companies to come on board? The big companies to come on board for Web 3D to be the thing that you want it to be, or can it be done? Can it be done organically in today's world? Like, you know, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean, I think big companies in general, if you look at them, their business model is usually to have a lock in to lock their customers in. And the way, part of the way to do that is to have a proprietary format mm-hmm. um, that you can't move between different tools that like could be your competitors' tools, for example. So I don't, you know, it's not always the big companies that want to, you know, jump on this at the very beginning. So I think it always starts organically like that. And when you get a groundswell of developers and people who sort of demand this because they're use, you know, they want to use this here, they want to use that there, they want to use this tool here, they want to use that tool there then it sort of convinces them they essentially their customer base that they have to sort of go along. So they, they usually are the ones that come along, um, sort of, uh, you know, begrudgingly at the end. Um, now as far as selling data, I, I mean, people sell data within a browser all the time, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, I log in the things I have to pay to subscribe. Um, so I, I, all the, I mean, there's plenty, any type of, you know, data, uh, exchange and and financial transactions etc everything can be accomplished within the browser it already is um so i don't see that as any problem at all
0: uh, to be honest cool um yeah i just want to get out of the way and coming down to a close just more on the philosophical side what do you think virtual reality will mean for us and this place in history that we're in that's a big (laughs) question I do that. I do that. I ask. I, yeah, you I do that. Yeah.
1: Um, well, I mean, I think that it's going to definitely be, I think it's, a, it's going to be uh, a major uh, place in history as a, as a new communication mechanism. Um, um, Some as like the uh, cell phone was, um, although even more so because it's more immersive. And so, you know, with each new sort of communication mechanism, when we get, we started off with what the started off with, uh, cave paintings mm-hmm. and, um, you know, then we went to, uh, write written, and uh, documents, written documents. And then we went to, you know, the telephone and television and, um, you know, computers, the internet, cell phones. I mean, it's sort of, I think it's going to take its place as one of those major communication modes. Um, and with it, it's going to bring its own set of, of, uh, you know, accomplishments and advancements for, um, like I said, our cognition and for, you know, our health. Uh, and just like the other ones made gigantic strides and changed society, I think this will too.
0: Yeah. Um, that well said. And I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, that was, that It has been a blast talking to you. Uh, I know you have uh, things to do and lives to save. How can people uh, stay in touch? How can people follow what you're doing, um, and, and all that good stuff. Where can people find more information on you? If, if, they, if you like that, I don't know if you do. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, I'm,
1: yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't, I do have a, a Twitter handle. It's 3d aviator. Cool. Um, and they can, I guess, get in contact with me through there. And then, um, you know, I'm on, if they're interested, they can look me up. Uh, all my contact information is, uh,
0: on the web, um, and are you working on anything in, in, for the future? Like, what, what are you getting your hands dirty with? Uh...
1: Yeah, like I said before, I am. Yeah, I am. I'm working uh, uh, working on the project to do virtual reality and rehabilitation, both uh, physical and cognitive. Cool. Uh, and then um, I'm also working with some startups on, um, you know, this new, all these new health IT startups to uh, essentially um, help. Uh, with care outside of the walls of the traditional four walls of a clinic or a hospital and trying to keep people well in between their very isolated and a few visits to the doctor
0: awesome um so i guess if you're out there listening whoever you are and you want to help uh michael dr michael save uh the future of humanity uh, get in touch with him and uh, yeah it was a blast thank you you are a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality and i'm looking forward to the next time we talk
1: yeah, thanks a lot for the opportunity Chris and uh really appreciate it. Have a good day.